Amen. Thank you once again for joining us this morning. Uh, we're just blessed to be together in the house of the Lord. We had a nice group of folks in the first service. Not that you weren't a nice group of folks. <laughs> but it's just nice to see people coming back to church. So if this is your first time here this morning, welcome. If this is your first time after being uh, gone for a while because of this last year, we're glad to see you back. So thank you so much for worshiping this morning. I have the privilege this morning of opening the scriptures today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Or if you want to use a Bible that's in front of you there in the pew. If you're at home watching, you can also turn to Matthew. And, uh, and we will also have the words on the screen for, for us this morning. Well, as many of you know, I am from Southern California. And I think I wear that uh, badge very proudly by just being chill and relaxed and, uh, and, uh, and just, you know, loving California and loving the California life. Uh, being out here in western New York in this cold weather, ooh, I could do without that for a while, but it's nice to have uh, friends out here in western New York. But in living in California, one of the things that, um, that you may not be familiar with is a pastor by the name of Greg Laurie. And Greg Laurie every year for the past 30 years has had an evangelistic crusade at the Angel Stadium there in Anaheim, California. And every year, thousands of people come to the crusade. They hear the gospel for the first time. And at the end of the crusade, what happens is that thousands of people come from the stands and they make a dedication and a commitment to Christ by coming onto the field. And it's an awesome experience to see people giving their life to Jesus, maybe hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ for the first time and responding to it. And it's not unlike what you may have seen if you've gone to a Billy Graham crusade, which I've had the privilege of doing also. Again, just an awesome experience to see a man of God proclaim the word of God and having people respond to it. Well, a lot of the criticism that these big evangelistic crusades receive is, uh, is because a lot of times um, there's loud music, there's a great message, and it really creates an environment where people say, well, they're just making a decision because of the emotional um, emotional experience that people are having during the, during the crusade itself. And I'll grant it that there probably are some folks who make decisions or come on that field, uh, even at a Billy Graham crusade, because of the, uh, the overwhelming emotion that occurs during this crusade. But I had the privilege uh, several years ago of, of working with the Harvest Crusade ministry. And, and I really like to tell people that there's actually something deeper that happens behind the scenes. It's not that they just want people to come onto the field and fill out a card that says, I made a commitment to Jesus, and then you go on and live your life. No, what they actually do, at least for this ministry, is they partner with the churches that are in the area, and they invite the churches to be involved with the crusade, so that if a person makes a decision for Jesus on the field that night, they literally give that name and phone number of that person to whatever church lives closest to where that person lives. So that church can do a follow-up, right? You see, because what happens is that a lot of times when we think of evangelism, when we think of Matthew 28, where we're going to be looking at this morning, a lot of times what happens is that evangelism, becoming a Christian, sharing the gospel, becomes just a little box that we check off. Did you get your fire insurance by becoming a Christian? Did you get your, um, you know, did you, did you make your decision that one night 20 years ago, but it really didn't mean anything to you now? And so this morning, as we think about Matthew chapter 28, this is going to be my challenge to us this morning, is to really take a look at what Jesus is saying here in the Great Commission and how it applies to each one of our lives. Because believe it or not, 
it's not just about checking off a box. It's about something deeper. It's about something that goes beyond just making a commitment to Jesus one time, but it's about being a disciple of Jesus and the church coming alongside people and helping them to grow in their relationship with God. So if you've got your Bible, Matthew chapter 28, let's read what the scripture says here. It says, Jesus came and said to them, to his 11 disciples at the time, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here it is, the Great Commission in a nutshell. You know, this morning as I share the scripture, as we open the word of God, there's a danger in what we're about to talk about. There's a danger because this is a familiar passage to us. This is a familiar passage that I can guarantee if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've heard these words, go and make disciples. So there's a danger here because we have, uh, we have the opportunity now to turn our brains off and say, oh, I've heard this sermon before, I've heard this message before, let me move on with my life, it's Mother's Day, what time is lunch going to happen, right? We have that danger this morning, but I want to ask you, please, stay engaged with me. Stick with me as we go through this, because I want to challenge you, and I want to bring to light what the text is actually saying so that we can, uh, we can, we can be faithful followers of Christ. All right? With that being said, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you so much for the opportunity that I have this morning to open your word and to speak. And I pray that you would increase as I decrease. I pray that you would speak through me so that your people uh, would, would be challenged, would be encouraged, would be admonished. For those who are here or hear this video later, I pray that you would draw us close to you and help us to love you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Matthew 28 isn't the first time that Jesus gave a command to his disciples to go out. It's actually the second time in the book of Matthew that we see this. The first time that this occurs is in Matthew chapter 10. The scripture tells us that Jesus gathered his disciples around him, and in Matthew chapter 10, this is what it says. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So in Matthew chapter 10, we see Jesus sending out his disciples with the purpose of doing what? Well, it's right here. Proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These 12 disciples, we know, would later become the 12 apostles. And the things that we see Jesus telling them they would have the authority and power to do, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. We see them having the authority to do that through the book of Acts and through the rest of the New Testament. And so we see that God had set these 12 men apart, and, um, and they went out and they did that, and they fulfilled this commission that Jesus gave them. So it's interesting to me here that this, like I said, this is not the first time in Matthew 28 that Jesus sends his disciples out, but actually it happens in chapter 10. And why is that important? Well, it's important because if you take the book of Matthew as, as, as a whole— you can see that Jesus, has, uh, Jesus is trying to set in place a pattern for his believers, for his disciples. We are to be individuals. If you are a follower of Jesus, 
if you are a Christian, if you're born again, if you are, if you are a follower of Christ this morning, sitting in a pew, if you're watching online, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is actually saying to each one of us that we should be about proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus showed us the way to the Father because he is the way to the Father. And when Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 tells his disciples for the second time to go and make disciples, it wasn't like he woke up on that morning and said, hmm, I got a great idea. Let me go and share this with my disciples. No, it was a plan that Jesus had all along for his followers to follow. And that plan is that disciples make disciples. But we'll get to that in a second. All right? You can see here from Matthew chapter 28 and Matthew chapter 10 that they, are both, um, they both have similarities. For instance, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this about authority. He says, uh, the Bible says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then we get to Matthew 28, and that same word is used, authority. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, it wasn't, again, as Jesus woke up one day and said to himself, Oh, now I've got all authority. I've died and I've risen from the dead. I have all authority now to tell my disciples what to do. The Bible tells us that Jesus has had all authority since before the creation of the world. As a second member of the Trinity, that uh, the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the sovereignty of Jesus, the, the, um, the, the power that he has to command his disciples. We see this both in chapter 10 and in chapter 28 of Matthew. And so in a sense, this chapter 28 is a continuation of what Jesus has already told his disciples what they need to be about. They need to be about going out and declaring the kingdom of God. Well, let's take a look a little bit deeper in Matthew 28, verses 18. Because what does it mean when Jesus gives this great commission? A lot of times when we hear this passage, or if we've been to some place and we've heard a sermon, or we've been to a conference and they use this passage, there is one word that, that people emphasize when we hear the great commission. That word is a two-letter word. It starts with a G and ends with an O, and it's the word go. Okay? Was that, was that, are you guys still trying to catch up on that? Go, right? Begins with G, ends with O, it's go. Okay. But did you know, taking a look at this passage, that's not the emphasis of this passage. That's not the thrust of what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples here. And, and make no doubt about it, who is Jesus talking to here? He's talking to his disciples. So again, if you are a disciple of Christ, that includes you this morning. The only word in this passage that is a command from Jesus is not the word go, it's not the word baptizing, and it's not the word teaching. Now, the reason I know it's not the only word in this passage of Scripture that is a command is because I'm paying a lot of money for seminary and I'm learning the Greek language, okay? <laughs> All right? All kidding aside, the word that Jesus uses in here, the Greek word that has a command in this passage is actually the word for making disciples. The emphasis in this passage, although it is important that we go, it is important that we teach and that we 
baptize, the emphasis here is to make disciples. So when we look at this passage of Scripture, we see that making disciples is what will happen as we are going, as we are teaching, as we are baptizing. So the, the heart of, of the Great Commission is to make disciples. So I think we've confused this in our, in our minds in churches a lot, right? Because we think the Great Commission, and we label the Great Commission to that word evangelism. I think that's a bad word in our culture nowadays, isn't it? Evangelism. I don't hear it so much. Um, well, we label the Great Commission as an evangelistic text. And when we think of evangelism like this slide shows, right, it's the idea that we're going to just tell people about Jesus, whether they want to hear it or not. We're going to just get out there and we're going to put on Facebook about Jesus and we're going to just do everything we can to tell the gospel message about Jesus, which is a good thing. So hear me right here, right? But then that's it. We've done our work. Jesus said go. I did. I went. Done. Okay. Back to my life. That's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is actually more of a, of a I like to call it the, the, the discipleship circle. Jesus is speaking to disciples, telling them to go and make disciples who will likewise do the same thing. It's a never-ending circle of disciples making disciples. So when we put those two together, evangelism and disciple, you know, it's not that these two are separate, but just for the purpose of this illustration, I wanted to use this uh, illustration here, right? Because really evangelism is tied into discipleship. But so much, so many times when we get to this passage of Scripture, the emphasis is just on the evangelism part, when really what the heart of this text is saying is that we need to be about discipleship which involves evangelism. Are you with me on that this morning? Are we clear on that? I'm not saying that evangelism is something we shouldn't be doing because we should be doing, but the heart of evangelism is really in seeing people come to be disciples of Christ. And what does that mean to be a disciple of Christ? You may be here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't know the Lord. You have never um, surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the great news of the gospel, is that we can know God and have a relationship with him. But it doesn't stop there. There's a process of discipleship that needs to happen. And so this morning, I want you to make sure you understand that I believe in evangelism, I believe in discipleship, but we're going to talk about what Jesus is emphasizing in this passage, and that is the discipleship circle. Are you with me this morning? I hope you are. I don't want to lose you. You're still with me. We've heard this passage many a times. Don't lose me, okay? All right. Now, as we take a look at Matthew chapter 10 and chapter 28, what happens is that there's some geographic things that are happening. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples to go to the lost sheep of Israel. In Matthew 28, the command is to go where? All the world. So when we think about making disciples, we think about being people who are seeking after the Lord and helping other people come to know the Lord and grow in his grace. There's really, a, there's really a sense where it happens right here in the time and space that we are in. For the, for the folks who received the scriptures, it was, it was Israel, it was the whole world, but now it's right here where we are at. So let's, let's get personal this morning. Let's talk about how we can be disciple makers here in where we live, western New York. And so let's, let's open that net up a little bit. 
All right? You know, the Bible tells us that the church is made up of people of every, na every race, ethnicity, every language, every tribe, every tongue. It's the mystery of the gospel. That, that all people in all the world can come to know Christ. But when we think about where we live right now in western New, New York, I want to talk a little bit this morning about the culture, the religious culture of western New York. And I want to do that because I want to help you to see, if you're not aware of it, what we face as believers trying to have, as disciples trying to make disciples. So first of all, I want you to understand that in 2019, the Barna Group put together a, 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 a survey of the most post-Christian cities in America. And we have a slide that's going to show that. The slide will be a little bit washed out if you're in the room. But this is a map of America. And you can see the two coasts. And what, what do you notice on that map, if you can see it? I know it's a little washed out. But where are a majority of the most post-Christian cities in America? Yeah. Northeast, right where we're at, right? Uh, northeast of the United States, a couple places in the, in the West, all right? Well, let's talk about this for a minute, because this is, this is, I hope this is eye-opening to you. If you can see on, on that map, the top 10, Christi 10 post-Christian cities in America, all right, number eight is Rochester, New York. Okay. I'll explain what post-Christian means in a minute. I just want you to see that. Number eight, Rochester, New York. Number six, Albany. Okay? What you don't see up there is number 41 is Syracuse. And number 14, anybody want to guess what number 14 is? Buffalo. Buffalo, according to the Barna in their survey they did, is one of the top 20 post-Christian cities in America. And what does that mean, post-Christian? The term post-Christian basically means is that as a society, as, as a culture in general, we no longer look to the Bible as authoritative. We no longer use uh, the scriptures or belief in, in Christianity as a thing that guides us. Right? I think we've seen that in our culture, right? We don't need to get into a, a discussion of what our culture looks like today. But, but here, here are some of the things that, um, well, actually, before we get there, I, I want you to notice something. Um, Albany, Syracuse, Rochester, and Buffalo. What, what, what makes all those cities in common? These are the top 20, mind you. New York State. Okay. How about all of them are on Interstate 90, the throughway. All right. What, what happened here is that, uh, we'll talk about this in a minute, but there's a, there's a reason why uh, this part of Western and Central New York is post-Christian. But let, before we get there, let's take a look at some of the criteria that they use. And, and you may recognize some of this criteria, but maybe people, maybe you, maybe you fall into the, some of this criteria of what they determine. So here's some of the things that they ask. These are questions they ask people, right? And they responded. So they don't believe in God. I mean, obviously, that would be an obvious one, right? They identify as atheist or agnostic. They disagree that faith is important in their lives. People have not prayed to God in the last week. They've never made a commitment to Jesus. They disagree the Bible is accurate. They have not donated to money, money to a church. They have not attended a Christian church in the last six months. This one we can give a little grace for, right, because of the last year or so. They agree that Jesus committed sins. I thought that was an interesting one. They do not feel a responsibility to share their faith. 
They've not read the Bible in the last week. They've not volunteered at church in the last week. They've not attended Sunday school. They've not attended a religious small group. Their Bible engagement is low, right? They maybe disagree strongly or what the Bible has to say, and they're not born again. These are some of the criteria that this survey used. It wasn't just a question of, are you a Christian? It was some of these questions. Have you attended Sunday school? And they used that data to say, um, this is what makes up these post-Christian cities. So we're number 14. Buffalo is number 14. And, and why is that important to us this morning, right? I mean, you didn't come to a history class or a statistics class this morning. Well, because I want, I want, you, to, I want you to understand the context of where we are living at today. Because if it's true that Jesus has called each one of us to be disciple makers, then we should be aware of what we're going to be dealing with as we attempt to do that. Right? I want you to be fully aware of what you're going to face as you make disciples, as you fulfill the commission that Jesus has given to each one of us. All right, so a little bit of history lesson as we wrap up this portion of, of the message. And why, how in the world did this part of America become post-Christian? Well, there's a little thing that many of you are familiar with called the Erie Canal. In the, 18, in the 1800s, beginning of the 1800s, 1825, the Erie Canal was completed. And as the Erie Canal was being built, what happened is that it made available transportation from the Hudson River Valley to Erie Canal. Prior to that, the main thoroughfare is actually where you are sitting right now, Highway 5, right? Highway 5 was the main thoroughfare. My, Highway 5, is, Main Street is still, is still a, a major route here in Buffalo, right? Uh, but that was it. So as, as, as the roadways expanded, as the Erie Canal came into place, what that allowed to have happen was that anybody and everybody that was religious, that had a message, that had something to sell, could do it with ease. You had everybody from the Seventh-day Adventists, the Wesleyans, the Mormons, and every crackpot religion that could, that, could, that could muster up the strength and energy to travel come to western New York uh, through the Erie Canal and through, that, through that, the building of the Erie Canal. It was so, so much was happening at the turn of the century that when Charles Finney, during the Second Great Awakening of America, had a revival in Rochester that lasted for many days, it led Charles Finney to say that this part of America, western New York, all the way to the central um, Ohio Valley, he referred to it as the burnt-out areas. There had just been so much religion, there had been so much stuff happening that people were just burned out with, burned out with religion. I think that's safe to say we still see that happening in this part of our world. It happens in a lot of places, but really here in, 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 uh, in western New York, as we think about the post-Christian cities, yeah, we can see that. Right? People are, don't want to have anything to do with religion. They don't want to talk about Christ. This is the community we live in. This is the environment that we have been called to make disciples in. And it's important that you know that. And why is that important? Because, again, Jesus has called each one of us to be disciple makers. If we put that slide up again and we think about the fact that a disciple makes a disciple, it becomes personal to us. What that means is that I can guarantee, I can almost bet that every single one of you knows somebody who falls into those different categories. They doubt the Bible. They've never gone to church. I would even add one question in there. They have a lot of questions about Christianity. You know who's going to answer those questions? 
you are. You're going to be the one that's going to answer those questions. If it's true that the Bible says disciples make disciples, then you and me are going to be the ones who answer those questions. We're going to be the ones that have to stand in front of people and give a testimony of our faith and tell them about the love of Jesus. And that's the realization that we need to come to this morning. Jesus has called us to be disciple makers. There's no getting around it. There's no way of skirting the issue. There's no way of saying, well, I can't really be a disciple maker because you can't. Because the Bible says in Matthew 28 that each one of us have been called to help other people come to know the Lord and grow in that walk with him. See, the scripture says in Matthew 28, as you are going, as you are teaching, as you are baptizing. So there's an implication here that if you're a follower of Christ in your everyday walk, no matter what it is you are doing, you are being a disciple maker. It doesn't mean that being a disciple maker is reserved only for the professional ministry or the professional clergy. It means that everybody everywhere, if they call themselves a follower of Christ, is a disciple maker. I hope if there's anything you remember this morning from my message is that you hear me saying over and over and over again, disciples make disciples. That's what Jesus is saying in the text, and that's what I'm challenging you this morning to be, is a disciple maker. Now, but Mario, listen, Mario, I am too old, I'm, or I'm too young to be a disciple maker. I, I'm too young to go stand on a street corner and with a big megaphone and tell people they need Jesus or they're going to hell. I'm too old to get on a plane and travel to Africa and be a missionary, or I'm too, whatever. Listen, I didn't, I think you're, you're not hearing me right. I didn't say you need to be on a street corner evangelizing people, although, again, that's what discipleship involves, right? Listen to what, listen to what Paul says to Titus. Paul tells Titus, have the older women teach the younger women. John tells his readers in 1 John that the older men should teach the younger men. See, there is, really is no excuse for not being a disciple. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how young you are. Until the day you die, God is calling each of us to be disciple makers. Why? Because disciples make disciples. Well, Mario, that's great and all. But I give a, I give a significant amount of my income, or I give to missions so that others can spread the good news of Jesus. You know what? Praise the Lord. That is awesome. That is great. But again, Jesus is calling you and he's calling me to be involved in the discipleship process. You know, Mario, I gave my money. I went to a concert and they had a little picture of like a little kid in this third world country. And I, I took that picture and I just give $50 every month to whatever's happening. I don't know where that kid lives. I don't know. I don't know. I think he's getting my money. That's great. But Jesus says, disciples make disciples. When we realize that we are not just called to go and check off a box of evangelism, but we are called to actually help people and raise them up in the faith and see them grow in Christ, our, our outlook 
on evangelism, our outlook on, on discipleship will change. Because we realize that we can do it in just the everyday, everyday uh, aspects of our life. So let me make this really practical now. As we begin to wrap it up, I want to invite the band to come up. Let me, let me, let me put, make this as practical as I can get for us here at Williamsville. Four, 6301 Main Street, 14221. Let me make it as practical as I can get. If God has truly called us to make disciples, how can I do that? How can I make disciples? How can I be involved in what God is calling the church, calling individual Christians to do? Well, let me just get really practical here. Uh, in the first service, we had, um, we had, I won't say how many people we had because Governor Como might be watching. We'll get in trouble. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> we, had a, we had about 60 people uh, in the first service. Uh, there's um, not as many in this service. So let me, let me, let me just... Let me, let me just roughly say uh, about 100 people. Uh, let me just use the number 100 people. If there was 100 people in our congregation this morning that said, you know what? I want to make a commitment to helping uh, someone become a disciple. And if each one of us, if 100 of us this morning made that commitment and said every week, every week of the month, I'm going to talk with one person about their faith in Christ, about how to become a disciple of Christ, and then I'm going to help that person, maybe invite them to church or tell them about Christ on a recurring... If we all just took one person, and every week we did one person, that would mean if with 100 people, that would be 400 people. Right, I've got to make sure my math is right. All right? So one, each one of us took one person. That's 400 people. And we made a commitment to do that for one year. That would be 4,800 people in this community would be able to hear and begin the process of being a disciple of Jesus. What, what does that look like? What, what does that look like? Well, that actually is about the, the population of the village of Williamsville. So right, the village of Williamsville right here, you know what I'm talking about? From Tim Hortons to Wendy's, right? The village of Williamsville has about 5,200 people. If, if everybody in this church to, that was here today said, I'm going to make a commitment to telling people about Jesus and about helping them to become a disciple, we could reach 4,800 people with the gospel message in one year. Imagine what would happen if that village of Williamsville, if just that population alone had an opportunity to hear the gospel, they had an opportunity to start growing in their faith. Do you think that would change the culture of Western New York? You bet it would, because the power of God, the authority that Jesus gave us would go forth in this community. Let, let me, let me, let me, let, let's pump these numbers up. If 150 people did the same thing, we would be able to reach 7,200 people, which is about the amount of people that were allowed into the Bills playoff game last year. 7,200 people. If 200 of us in this congregation said we want to do the same thing, talk to one person every week, for one year, 9,800 people would have an opportunity to hear about Jesus and begin the discipleship process. Why do I say this? Why do I say this? I say this because Jesus isn't calling us to reach the billions of people around the world. He's calling us to be a disciple as we go. And where do we go? In our community. We are in our community. The opportunity to reach our community with the gospel of Christ 
the opportunity to start making disciples in this community is as tangible as reaching people that live right across the street. But you got to be willing to go and start doing it. You got to be willing to step out of your comfort zone and begin making disciples of Jesus. Why are we starting a church plant in Clarence Hollow? Because there needs to be disciples of Jesus in Clarence Hollow. Why did we start a church plant in North Tonawanda? Because there's a need for disciples in North Tonawanda. Why has this church existed for over 195 years? Because there needs to be disciples in this part of the world. And God is calling each one of us to be disciple makers. Because the Bible says in Matthew 28 that disciples make disciples. So that's my challenge to you. Go and make disciples.